All right, so we are in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2. It says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such praise, practice, nor do the churches of God. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this time um, that we can learn about you. I thank you for Josh and the way that you've revealed to him, um, yourself to him. Lord Jesus, I pray um, that you would also reveal yourself to us this morning that we would leave a little bit different and more like you. We love you a lot. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Lindsay. Uh, good morning, guys. How are you doing? Sweet. Um, if, has anybody in here, show of hands, has anyone ever used a VHS tape before? Look at you. So cultured. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Uh, Man, the other day, uh, my five-year-old Gus, he found a stack of my wife's VHS tapes from when she was a kid. She'd do all these home videos. If you want some, I'll give them to you. Just ask. They're awesome. If you went to Stumpy's, that's a little flavor of what they're like. So she's amazing. Um, and he goes, Dad, what are these? And uh, I was like, well, they're videos, you know, and you just you watch videos and stuff. And he just kind of looked at me really confused, like not really knowing how this is a video in his mind. And, and I said, well, I mean, back when mommy and daddy were little, you know, we didn't have phones in our pockets that we could just video everything. You know, phones were these things on the wall. They had cords and you'd have to like, you know, go in the other room and talk. Or videos were taken with these huge machines you'd put on your shoulder and you had to put these tapes in them and you'd video stuff. And, you know, you had to put them in these, you know, all these tapes. And I'm going off about all these things. And this five-year-old boy just in there looking at me. And I finish, and I look at him, hoping that he's going to be like, oh, okay, I get it. And he goes, what? He's <laughs> just so confused, you know? And I finally just went, well, you're just consider yourself lucky. You know, like, it's just, you're in a much better time, basically, you know? Um, man, things in life change quickly, and it makes it really difficult often to navigate the past. They change very quickly. And I think trying to explain what a VHS tape is to Gus it seemed, it just felt really archaic. I felt very old. And I think in a similar way, trying to describe 
how we didn't have phones in our pockets, you know, we had to take video with these phones and all this kind of stuff. It was very confusing to him. I think Gus's perception, in a sense, of a VHS tape illustrates, I think, the difficulty we can have when we often at times are trying to apply the Bible today. Uh, After all, Scripture was written thousands of years ago ago, uh, to a world that was vastly different than our own in terms of technology, in terms of how people function and those types of things. And so so I think the question's raised, like, how then do we know how to follow these ancient texts that still completely apply to our lives? They're, They're alive and active. Well, first of all, I think we should always feel this way. And I actually think it's pretty unfortunate that oftentimes we don't. We just read our Bibles and we just assume that we understand what this meant for people thousands of years ago. We don't even consider the fact that um, it, it, it was written in a specific time and, and place in history, and that there's things about that what's going on in the culture of Corinth that when you read these things, it just doesn't compute to us. It kind of feels like me describing a VHS tape or something like that to Gus, now doesn't it? But see, the thing is, you contextualize your Bible all the time. You don't even probably realize it. So like if you read something in the Gospels and it talks about giving like 10 shekels of silver to somebody, you don't go, well, I got to find 10 shekels of silver and give them to somebody. You don't do that. You just can immediately contextualize different things because you realize the Bible was written to people, first and foremost, who lived in history in a real specific culture. And so it was written to them, but it still applies to me today. And so I think when we come to passages like chapter 11 that Lindsay just read for us this morning, we become acutely aware of the reality that the Bible wasn't first written to us, right? Like right away, it feels like we're being described what a VHS tape is or something. That, that culture oftentimes is very much unlike ours. And so here's what we often do, I think, when we come to a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, there's kind of four different categories, or categories of people as I've thought about this. One category of people often read this, and with good intentions, um, let's, let's, not, let's be careful here, good intentions, people read this, and they want to honor God, and they go, well, it's pretty simple, straightforward, I'm just going to start wearing head coverings, or guys, I'm not going to have long hair, or whatever have you, or I'm not going to wear a hat, right, when I pray, or in church, or something like that. And so, people mean well, and they just, oh, it's basic, it's easy, I'm just going to move on. They don't even think about the fact that there's maybe something cultural happening here, okay? The second group of people often read this, and they think, well, this is why I can't trust the Bible. It's so old-fashioned. It's irrelevant to our modern society. It can't be trusted. We should just do away with it and move on. A third category of people, I'm guessing, is most of us. You read a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You read it, and you go, well, this is weird. Uh, moving on. <laughs> That's kind of what you do. I even tried to do a little bit of research, and I was actually blown away at how many pastors. Pastors have been preaching for 40 years, just avoided this passage. And I actually had to wrestle with like, oh, should I not be preaching this passage? But at the same time, I'm the type of person I read this and I'm like, what does it mean? I believe God's word is authoritative, alive, and active. What does it mean for me? And uh, I hope that this, the rest of us this morning, because there's a fourth category of people, we can come to this and I, I want us to be these people. We read this and we go, uh, this is weird. What's going on? But then we actually do the hard work and we press in. And we go, God, how does this apply to me today? If your word is alive and active, then how does this apply? If 1 Corinthians chapter 10 applied to me, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 applies to me, and 1 Corinthians 11, 17 and following applies to me, then this has to apply to me. That's the assumption. And so I think in order to do that this morning, if we're going to be these kind of people, I need to begin by just saying there's a certain kind of heart posture we need to have, I think, when we come to a passage like this. 
And because our passage is so rooted in creation, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, I actually thought the heart posture we need is a lot like Adam and Eve's, actually the exact opposite of the heart posture that you see in Adam and Eve, because of the heart posture they had. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, we see that God had placed a tree in the garden called the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, you can eat of any of the trees except that one. When you eat of it, you'll surely die. And the temptation was the serpent came along and he tempted them. He said, no, 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 if you eat that, God doesn't want you to eat that because if you eat that, you will be like God, knowing right and wrong, good and evil. But the temptation wasn't that they would just know what's right and wrong. They already knew it was right and wrong. God told them what was right and wrong. They already knew. That's not the temptation. The temptation is that in eating the fruit, they would be like God, meaning they would declare autonomy from God and say, I want to choose what is right and wrong. That was the heart posture. They grabbed the fruit and ate because the temptation was, I get to choose what's right and wrong. I don't want to listen to what God says is right and wrong. And that's the, the heart of sin, isn't it? That you have rebellion against God. God says, this is right, this is wrong. And we go, no, I think this is right and wrong. And that was their heart posture. And look at where it left us. And so I think it's really important that we come this morning to a passage like this that might be really difficult for sure. And we go, I don't want that posture. I want to go, what does God say is right and wrong? If God is the designer of this whole thing, then what does He say? I don't want to give my life to that, regardless of how comfortable that makes me feel or uncomfortable that makes me feel. So that's the heart posture. It's a humble heart posture. And so this is what we're going to do. This will be on the back of your branch notes. If you look on the back of your notes, I kind of wrote down for you the basic structure of this passage, which is verses 2 through 6, 7 through 12, 13 through 16. And I'm going to ask basic questions here, 2 through 6. What the heck's going on? Okay? 7 through 12, does this matter? Short answer you'll see is yes. Verses 13 through 16, how do we apply this today? Because Paul basically says, all right, what are you going to do with it? All right? So what's going on here, verses 2 through 6? Read with me again. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut off her hair. For since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Paul talks about these traditions or their teachings that he's handing down, which signals for you this is not just his ideas. He's passing something along, okay? And this section here in chapter 11 actually runs all the way to the end of chapter 14, and it's this section of 1 Corinthians where Paul is beginning to talk about how the church should relate to each other and function when the church is gathered. So he's going to talk about the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, love, all these things. And so he leads into this section teaching on gender roles and leadership, basically. It's really interesting. Well, what's the issue? Well, most likely, some Corinthians had begun suggesting that all distinctions between men and women were to be avoided in worship based upon potentially a misunderstanding of Paul's teaching that in Christ, as Paul said in Galatians, in Christ we all have the same standing before God. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. 
So potentially, what we see here is that when men and women are saying, my gender doesn't matter anymore, I'll just appear to people however I want. The way they were doing this in saying that they didn't think their gender roles mattered to God anymore was how they were expressing themselves, how they were expressing themselves. And there's this back and forth debate here. I have to explain this to you because you're all asking. There's a back and forth debate here for a long time on what this word covering even means. Um, is it a reference to hair or is it a reference to an actual covering? You actually can decide. That's fine. Um, I'm pretty convinced that it's a reference to hair. I'll give you my reasons. Paul nowhere mentions this idea of covering or veil except in verse 15. It's the only place that he mentions the word covering. Now, your English Bibles probably use the word covering a lot, but it's actually not the word covering, it's the word hair. So, someone's interpreted that for you, okay? So, even if your translation uses the word, it's actually not there. It's, it's a reference to long hair. And so, we see even in verse 15 that long hair, it says, is given to a woman as her covering. It's the only time the word's used, okay? Secondly, Greek, Roman, Jewish cultures, to them, loose hair, having just, you know, your footloose, fancy-free hair going or something like that. Um, or if you're a woman and your hair had been cut off or shorn, uh, that was a sign that you had been cut off from the community. Basically, anybody who had a, a shaved head as a woman in a society like this was either a slave or a prostitute. So, I don't know if you've seen the movie like Les Mis, Les Miserables, the Anne Hathaway one, right? At least that one. I haven't seen the other ones, okay? Uh, she has a shaved head. Why? She's a prostitute. It was a sign, I am cut off from the community, right? So, it's, it's that idea. So, in a sense, you can decide for yourself if you, if you like whether it's a reference to hair or covering. Honestly, that's, that's really not the idea. Uh, the idea is what's beneath the point. His major point is that women are supposed to adorn themselves in a certain way that a man isn't adorning himself. And a man is supposed to adorn himself in a way that a woman isn't adorning herself. This is really important. I must say this to you. There is a, a principle when we interpret the Bible, when you get to difficult parts like this, where we must go, the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. Well, what's plain is that he wants men and women distinguished from each other, and it has something to do with their heads. Why does he want them to adorn themselves a certain way? Why is he so concerned about this covering or lack thereof? The answer is laid down in verse 3, which is the principle that runs through the whole passage. He says, I want to un you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. There is an order or design in creation, he's saying, and we must see, though, that the headship over, of man over woman no more diminishes the worth of a woman in relation to a man in the same way, that's what he says here, in the same way that God, the Father's headship over Jesus Christ in no way diminishes Jesus' equality with the Father. You see that in verse 3. See, well, what's the issue is not so much what's on their heads. The, the, the issue is what's going on inside of their heads. Well, what's going on with their heads is actually expressive of what they believed about themselves and about how God had designed them and intended for them to live. And the result of this was significant because we are told here that it brought shame or dishonor is what your translation might say. And you see these things in verses 3 through 6. But what was bringing shame was not the fact that people were praying or prophesying. Because if you notice here, both men and women are portrayed as praying and prophesying in the church. They're both praying, they're both prophesying. He doesn't say anything about that. He's like basically saying, that's fine. 
That's not what's bringing shame. What's bringing shame is how they were expressing themselves. And, and this, is dif- this is really important because this is an honor and shame culture. And our culture is actually moving into an honor and shame culture. We used to be a guilt culture, but an honor and shame culture, basically what that means is whatever you're doing or whatever you're saying or if you're believing, if the culture at large agrees with you, you're honored. If what you believe, say, or do is not agreed upon by the culture, you're shamed, you're cut off. You see this a lot now in our culture with the rise of social media, right? We feel it, okay? And so people want to be honored, respected, and thought of to be praised by somebody else. And so I bring this up because Paul is saying this is why it's significant, because honor or its opposite, shame, is what's at stake. Your word might be dishonor or graceful. But there's three different people that are being respected and honored or shamed. The first is God's respect, God's honor, God's shame or lack thereof of shaming him is at stake. You see that in verse 4. It says, the head of every man is Christ. So something that the man does honors or dishonors God. So that's at stake. Verse 2, we see that what a woman does either honors uh, men or dishonors men. And then in verse uh, 4 and 5 again, you see this play on words, which we should understand that the idea that, yes, your head is a reference to somebody else, your head is also a reference to yourself. And so the way you live, the way that you express yourself as male or female in this context means that you are going to shame or dishonor yourself because your head is the representative figure of yourself as well. And then Paul actually climaxes this whole idea here about shame and disrespect in verse 6. He basically is calling their bluff, and he's saying, hey, these liberated men and women who are going against cultural norms, he says, if you really don't care about respect or self-respect or um, good manners, just why not go the whole way? Why not go the whole way? Why not appear in public shaved? I mean, this would be, again, the ultimate way of showing one's indifference to femininity or womanliness or perceived respectability in the culture. He's like, well, if you don't really care about it, then why not just go the whole way? Why not just present yourself like a prostitute would or a slave would? He pushes them all the way. So somehow what's at stake is either honoring or shaming God, the other, and yourself. How is this the case? Might be confusing to us. Just think about it. We're a little familiar with dress code, right? Uh, to even today. How we dress brings honor or shame on us and others. We have a couple weddings coming up here, right? Uh, Trent and Bonnie, congratulations. Matthew McKenzie, right? Let's just say Matthew McKenzie, yours is the newest, yours, or yours is the most recent, coming up here in a, f- a few weeks. Congratulations. We're excited for you guys, okay? Let's just say they had a really formal wedding. I don't get that impression, but let's just say you're going to have a really formal wedding. You're like a formal attire, and I show up, I get to officiate the wedding, I'm very grateful and humbled by this, but I'll officiate the wedding. Let's just say I show up and I'm in my sweats, sweatshirt, my Giants hat, my Giants hat, because I'm baseball season's here. And I'm like, you know what, it doesn't even matter. I don't even care what you think about me. I don't even care what other people think about me. I just show up however I want to show up. Even though I, you know, I get invited to the wedding, I show up, I do these things. What's going to happen? Well, I'm going to bring shame on myself, right? No one's going to respect me for that. Because I'm choosing, even though I'm, I'm like, well, I have the liberty to do that, I guess. I'm, I'm choosing to not be respected because that's not what's culturally accepted in the moment. But number two, I'm actually dishonoring and shaming Matthew McKenzie. Because as I'm there, I'm sure most people are actually going to be looking at me and going, that's weird that he's dressed that way. So the eyes are going to be on me when the eyes should be elsewhere. Right? 
So we, we get this. This is how dress works even in our society. Right? In the same way, whether we think it's important or not, in this culture, how you presented yourself with your hair was either fitting into the normal of society or it was a distraction for the main goal when the church gathered, which is worshiping God. It was a distraction. So this is, this is difficult for us, I think, and really relevant as I've studied it this week because we live in a time and a culture where gender itself is breaking down into sameness. And we celebrate it. And on top of that, most of us just want to express ourselves however we want, be whoever we want, and not be like the next person. And so the question is, should we read this and shrug it off and move on because we're more sophisticated now? So that leads us to the second point. Does this matter? Does this matter? Look at me in verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. uh, Nevertheless, in the the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman, and all things are from God, his creator. So I think if we're going to be, you know, quick and read verses two through six, those first five verses there of the section, say this whole section is merely cultural, doesn't apply then we're really forced to pause here for a second and second-guess that idea because the principle of the teaching here, it's not grounded in Corinthian culture. Paul doesn't just merely go, that's how the Corinthians do it. No, he takes you all the way back to creation, actually pre-fall creation, before Genesis chapter 3. He says, this is important because the way God designed you. But if someone wants to take verses 3 through 10 here that I just read, and if you're a guy and you want to do some sort of like chest-beating male misogyny with it, uh, we need to vehemently oppose that because that's not what this says. Because you get to verses 11 through 12, and you see that this isn't saying that man is superior to women at all, actually. Verses 11 through 12 says the exact opposite. Says they are equal, completely and utterly equal. But our culture, I think, would tend to take verses 11 through 12 and elevate it and saying men and women are equal, therefore we're just the same. And we want to ignore verses 3 through 10. So don't do either of those ends of the spectrum, basically. We got to go, how do we hold these two things together? Because it's basically saying men and women are equal, yet different, complementary. We should equally oppose that as well, okay? So Paul affirms the equality the mutuality, the complementarity, and the difference of gender in these verses, which is against our modern trends today. Paul insists that gender difference is more than a matter of physiology, that gender isn't just the result of some social construction. It's not the result of some social convention. Gender is a result of God Himself. It's not random. It's not cultural. God Himself Men and women are from God. He created them male and female. There is design behind us. There's design behind your gender. And we're being told here that creation has this order design, that just as Paul cares about order in the church, he begins this section by talking about order and creation. His plea to us is like, God created you guys. He didn't screw up. He designed this whole thing. Live into your design. That's what he's saying. Um, I'm in the market for a new car. I was told I only got like a thousand miles left on the one I have. Okay, it's sad. I've had this car for like ever. Okay, um, I'm looking for a Subaru Outback. 
2007, around there maybe, I don't know, something like that, okay? Uh, if I so happen to get a new car, 2007 Subaru Outback, that'd be sweet, okay? Let's say I get one, all right? <laughs> what do I need to do? I need to first figure out how this car was made, don't I? I don't need to think all the ins and outs of it, but I need to listen and go, what kind of oil does it take? I can't just put whatever weight of oil I want in there. It'll ruin the engine. I can't just go, man, diesel's cheaper today. I'm going to put that in there, you know? <laughs> uh, I, I love the movie Back to the Future. Man, that DeLorean, right, the dock. Have you seen the Back to the Future? Oh, my gosh, if you haven't, that's your afternoon homework, okay? <laughs> but dock creates this time-traveling vehicle. And I always loved it as a kid because the, the way it was fueled was by throwing trash in it. That's how it was fueled. And I was like, that'd be awesome. What if I really was listening to Doc, you know? I'm like, that's how cars run. I'm going to put trash in this new, or new to me, Subaru Outback, right? What's going to happen? No one's going to give me a ticket for that, are they? No one's going to say you did something wrong and illegal, are they? No one's going to do that. But what's going to happen? My car's going to break down eventually, isn't it? It's like not going to work. Why? Because I'm not living into the design of the car, am I? We, we understand this. Like when someone creates something or designs something, you didn't know how it was designed, so you live into it. So, so the same is true. If God really made you, he didn't screw up when he made you. And there, there's something about the way he made you that you and I need to listen and, and live into that design. If God's our creator, then we, we must discover what the purposes of his design are. That they're, they're not a greater than, less than design, they're complementary. And we know this because of verses 11 through 12, like I said. And really powerfully here, in verse 11, like I said, we see the equality of men and women, the mutuality that's needed in this relationship. Again, Paul's primarily referring to uh, what happens in the church, what happens in marriage. What this is saying here is that man can, listen to me, this is really important. <clears throat> what this is saying here in verse 11 is that man can be truly man only if he can be so in relation to woman as truly woman. Woman can be truly woman only if she can be so in relation to man as truly man. That's what it's saying. There is a dependence upon each other. That's what he says. There is something about the way God designed men and women that completely complements each other. And so if they're dependent upon each other, then man can only be man, truly man, in relation to woman being truly woman. And woman can only be truly woman as a relation to man as truly man. Do you see that? If you break it down into sameness, something breaks down. Something completely goes wrong. And we see this, right? As Christians, we believe the Bible teaches that God is one God, yet three persons. He's a Trinitarian God, right? And so in the same way, we see this. Jesus is Jesus only as in relation to the Father, the Spirit is the Spirit in relation to Jesus. The Father is the Father in relation to the Son. There is, if, if, if there is sameness only in the Godhead, and no distinction at all, we lose the glory of God. We lose who God is. If you break the Trinitarian God down into just sameness, you lose the glory of God. And so in a similar way, gender differentiation is important to God. But the way it plays itself out in the design of God is not that men and women are to be competitive. That's not the design. But it's that you would mutually respect each other because you see how much you need one another to be man and to be woman. 
So Paul insists here that gender difference actually nurtures mutual respect. Men and women aren't independent of each other, but they're dependent. It should be clear to us that gender differentiation should never nurture domination on one side or manipulation on the other. Our differences should undermine competitiveness and serve mutuality. Don't rip this verse, this passage, out of the context of this whole letter, because what has Paul been doing all along? If you look at the entire letter and you don't rip this out and just throw it away or something, this is another example of this thread that's been running through the entire letter that really started more so in chapter 7 and it will end at the end of chapter 14. And the thread is that you and I should constantly be focused on living for respect, living out of respect for the other. We've been talking about this for weeks. This climaxes, I think, in chapter 13 in Paul's iconic chapter on what love is and how it is more important than anything. He's talking about the need for the other, loving the other. This is so critical. In other words, we need each other in order to bring the glory to God that He deserves and is owed. That's why we see here in these verses, especially um, in chapter, uh, in verse 7, this reference back to the creation narrative where God creates man and woman. Why? To image Him, to glorify Him. He didn't make men and men, women and women. He made men and women, something about men and women that were the same yet different, that brought glory to God, that images God. And this is our design as people. Every single time God calls you to to image Him or or glorify Him or or do anything, it's in relation to who He is because we're supposed to do that. And we need each other to do that is what He's saying. I mean, just think about the church or God's people and what we've been designed to do. We're made in God's image, in His likeness. So God always says this. He says what? Be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. You know what he says? He'll say it in elsewhere, do justice, love mercy. Why? Not just because God doesn't do that stuff and needs someone to do it. No, it's because that's what he is. That's what he does. It's who he is. When God says, care about the outsider, when God does that, why? Because he cares about the outsider. When God tells you to love, it's not because he doesn't love. No, it's because he is love. He says, love how? As I have loved you. Right? When God says, worship me and nobody else, why? That's because God doesn't worship anybody else. God's not going to temples and saying someone's greater than me. No, God knows he is the most supreme being in all the universe. God is God-centered. So when he tells you to worship him, he's not telling you to do something else that isn't already true of who he is. And this trickles all the way down here to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which says that still we are made in God's image to image his glory. And when we function complementarily and not in sameness, there's a beauty to this. There's a glory to this. And if we break it down into sameness, that takes that away, that ruins that. I I love uh, fruit. Oranges are my favorite, okay? It would be a bummer if all fruit were oranges, right? I love vegetables. Asparagus is my favorite. Being real with you right now. Don't, Don't you, okay? I'm just kidding. It's great. Little olive, salt and pepper. It's good, okay? Olive oil. Not just olive. It's weird. Um, if all the vegetables were asparagus, right? Wouldn't be as great, would it? You know what I'm saying? Uh, breakfast is a wonderful meal, isn't it? If every breakfast joint in Corvallis was the broken yolk, even if you like broken yolk, uh, it's kind of a bummer, isn't it? The diversity of breakfast plates. We were talking about this the other day. We need more breakfast places in Corvallis, quite honestly. But nonetheless, right? You, you like the diversity. It's all breakfast. It's all fruit, it's all vegetables. The diversity, though, 
produces an image or a glory or complexity or a complementarity that glorifies what? Actually, the Creator, even the food you eat, it glorifies God in the way that He created things. There's a diversity to it. So, does this matter? Yes. Why? The glory of God is at stake. Look in verse 7, right? Thirdly, how do we apply this today? Look in verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So Paul essentially says here, reach a decision. Judge for yourselves. Don't go on vacillating. To be very clear here, what's not up for decision is for them to decide, did God make men and women distinctively different for a reason? Well, he's already argued that in creation. That's not up for decision, okay? Um, This is even why he brings back this word nature here, okay? What's up for decision, though, is how they're going to land in their terms of expression. Because again, the heart of the matter was not what was going on on top of their heads, what was going on on top of their heads was indicative of what was going on in their hearts. And that's what he's getting at again. So he tells them this, that we're not going to fight about it. And all the churches function this way, meaning they adopt the cultural norms of what it looks like to be a man or a woman and how you present yourself. So his practical conclusion is challenging him to think this, men should be men, women should be women. How does your culture do that? So uh, for us, how does this apply to us? Uh, we're going to have clippers at the back door every week. So if your hair is too long, we're just going to buzz it off. We're going to be like, hey, guys, take your hats off, please. I see a few hats this morning. Um, uh, does this mean that we're going to have head coverings at the door for all the women? Is that what we're going to do now? Uh, well, the application is the application that women should return to wearing head coverings. No. Guys, we need to distinguish between the principle and the application. If you don't believe me, just think about missionary context, for example. I think it'll be really helpful. Are you going to go into an African context where it's culturally accepted and the norm for women not even to wear a top? And you're going to go in there and you're like, hey, 1 Corinthians 11 says you need to wear a head covering. Wear a head covering. Who cares about anything else? Well, no. If, If that is what it looks like and appears to be woman in that culture then you're not going to go in there and say, to obey Scripture, you need to be wearing this hat or something. But that's not the application. We, we clearly see that. You would go in and you would teach them then masculinity and femininity and how God has designed us to live into our design. And you're not even doing so just from a really shallow, lazy way of being like, men should be lumberjacks and work construction all the time, and women should just cook dinner. That's not what it means to be masculine or feminine either. There's something much deeper than that. The cultural application will vary. If our culture uses hairstyles that are distinctively male or female, then we as Christians should hold to those norms because we honor the gender that God made us. If our culture begins to blend the two together, which is our culture, we should try our best to distinguish between the two. Why? Because we want to image God. Male and female, he made them in his likeness. 
to image him. It should cause us really to be thinking about how we present ourselves. Are we distracting from the glory of God or are we contributing to it? Are we helping the gospel? Are we hindering the gospel? Why? Because again, the outward expression here is pointing to an inward belief. That's what it's doing. That's what it's doing. Um, for the sake of time, let me just go to this. I've, I've noticed a huge difference when I feed my kids vegetables. I'm on a vegetable kick today, apparently. Uh, eating, feeding my kids vegetables or, you know, giving my kids ice cream, okay? Eating dinner at my house is uh, it's honestly one of my least favorite times of the day. Um, the food's always good because um, I don't make it. Um, and then the kids, they eat well and sometimes not so much, most of the time not so much. Uh, and the reason is because a lot of times Liz will feed them something healthy like broccoli or vegetables or something. And it's amazing how painfully slow they eat the vegetables, right? But when I give them dessert like ice cream, it's gone in seconds. They're actually licking the bowl, okay? And I, I think about that and, and I'm like, wow, it's amazing how these kids, they'll eat their vegetables so painfully slow, and do I really have to eat it? Yes, you need to eat it. And even though they don't want to eat it, even though it's difficult for them to stomach at times, we still force them to eat it. Why? Because it's really good for them. Actually, it's way better for them. And I know that as a parent, so I'm determined for them to eat it, right? The same as, I, I, but how much would I love for them to actually eat their vegetables like they eat their ice cream. I would love that, man. I would love that. It'd be a lot easier at dinner time, honestly. I would absolutely love that. And I think in the same way, when it comes to a lot of things in our lives, when we're reading Scripture and God's saying, this is how I've made this. This is how I've designed it. You might receive that the way my kids receive vegetables. Do I need to eat this? Do I need to believe this? And I would, I would say to you, metaphorically, God is like that parent saying, it's the best thing for you, trust me. But my question is, is it possible to get to the point where you would read 1 Corinthians 11 in the overarching picture of what it's saying to you and me as men and women, and we would actually devour it like we do a bowl of ice cream? We're like, I want this. I need this. There's a, there's a, a core thing for, for that to switch from you this morning to go from just viewing this as eating vegetables to eating ice cream, it all depends on one thing. It all depends on who it is that you want to glorify. That's what this whole thing boils down to. This is all hinging on who you want to glorify. It boils down to who you want to glorify. Guys, one of the key heart issues that is raised in a passage like this is our own selfishness and our own desire for our own glory. And so men have taken passages like this and others in the name of Christ, which is evil, they've used it to dehumanize women to a second class within humanity. That's not what this is saying. On the contrary, women often have read this and get upset by it, and there's this internal anger that can rise up that argues for not having any sort of differentiation in role that God could you know, design things a certain way uh, that would be contrary to what they would really want. 
both of these responses, both men and women, do you see are self-seeking, and to put it bluntly, do not have any category of love involved or the desire to seek the glory of God. It's the desire to seek the glory of self to do what you want in life. If we have in view here, and if we have at the center of our longings, honestly, the glory of God, then whatever my role is, I'm not going to use it against you, am I? And I won't seek to have something that God hasn't given to me because I don't care about me. I care about God. And I want Him to be glorified. I want Him to be imaged. I mean, just think of it this way. It's like um, women's basketball, right? Our, our Beaver women's basketball doing really well right now. We lost on Friday. It's a bummer, whatever. But um, just think about women's basketball. Women's basketball is actually wonderful to watch because it's actually a, a purer form of the game. I think women do a way better job at the team aspect of the sport of basketball. And this is how basketball works. You have a coach. He recruits a team. He makes someone the team captain. Not everyone's the team captain. Not everyone's saying, I want to be the team captain. I need to be the team captain. Everyone needs to be the team captain. No one's saying that. Someone's a team captain. He deploys people onto the court. And he knows, I need someone to get me 20 points tonight. I need the person who's eighth person on the bench. I need that person to come off, play good defense, do maybe the small things even. Right? And the team together isn't sitting there saying, I want to be the star. I want to you know, make a name for myself, seek my own glory. They don't play for the name on the back. They play for the name on the front, right? Go Beavs, basically. And that's what makes a team successful, isn't it? Because they play not for their own stats, not for their own glory, not for their own recognition. They play for the good of the whole team, which glorifies, hopefully, the University of Oregon State, right? This is how this works. In the same way, if we enter into our marriage relationships or the life of our church, and we say, I want to do that, or I want to do this, and I'm not content with this, yet God has placed us into a certain position, whether you're a man, you're saying, I don't want to lead. Or your woman, you're saying, I don't want to follow. Whatever it might be, we go, well, it's not about me at all. My, my goal is to realize that God has made me. He didn't screw up. And he's the center. He's the prize. And more than anything, we see this in the life of Jesus, don't we? That, that he's our aim, that he's our goal, that we see Jesus himself submitting to his Father, and that doesn't make him less God. In fact, in submitting to his father, we are told that by his humility and his obedience that drove him to the point of death on the cross, that God's exalted him to the highest place. We have it backwards. Humility, the way down is the way up. And that's why you see when you read the Gospels, especially when you hear about Jesus talking about greatness and what it means to be a significant person, he repeats over and over again in different ways, like a broken record, the last will be first. If you want to be exalted, you should humble yourself. When the disciples are even jockeying for a position of greatness, Jesus takes that moment to say, hey, even me, the eternal son of God, I came to serve, not to be served and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so, guys, we see Jesus, the true eternal son of God, equal to the Father and Spirit, humbling himself to a position that was lower than any human. He humbled himself and he received our shame on the cross. And through his humility, he has been exalted. Do you see, when we live into our gender equality yet distinction, we bring glory to Jesus because we either image Jesus in the way that he lovingly and sacrificially leads or in the way that Jesus lovingly and sacrificially followed his Father. And this only works, guys, it only works if we care about the glory of God over the glory of ourselves. I love going to the ocean and just looking out at it for hours, and I always think, that's a lot of water. <laughs> and I'm blown away. That's literally my thought. 
you just see for miles and miles, all you see is water. And I often sit there and I meditate on the verses, that's the promise. It says, the glory of God will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. That's if we care about that, if we want to live into that, if we want to see that, then this passage really matters. The way that you, that you receive the way God made you and a desire to live into that in humility, no matter what position you have, no matter what complementary role you have, that brings glory to God, and we want to see that glory cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. As let's all stand together as, I, as we go into our time of response. Jesus, I pray that you'd open our hearts to receive your word. God, that we, more than anything, would just be humbled this morning. God, that we would joyfully receive the responsibility that you've given us. God, that more than anything, God, that you would cause us to want you to be on display to the world. And may that happen in our relationships here in this church. And God, may that happen in our homes. God, would we put you on display? Would we be your image bearers in the way that you, God, have called us to be? And we are so grateful, Lord Jesus, that you have made a way for us to even want to live into this. Lord Jesus, we lift you high. I pray you'd be our aim. I pray you'd be our gaze. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.